0: Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, Today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Ramon Harvey and Dr. Ryan Mullins. You are most welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Today um, we are doing a new thing on Blogging Theology, hosting a dialogue between two distinguished philosophers. One is a Christian and the other a Muslim. I'll leave it to you to work out which is which and they have chosen to explore a fascinating subject god and time in islamic thought but before we commence the dialogue i just want to introduce our two esteemed guests ramon harvey is lecturer in islamic studies at cambridge muslim college here in england he received his phd from soas at the university of london His publications include Transcendent God Rational World and Maturidi Theology. This is uh, my copy. Do recommend it. Uh, Excellent book published in 2021. And also the Quran and the Just Society published in 2018, both published by Edinburgh University Press. Ramon's current research interests uh, focus on Islamic theology, both historical and contemporary, especially in conversation with Christian theology, analytic philosophy and phenomenology he's the editor of the book series edinburgh studies in islamic scripture and theology and has also appeared on bbc radio 4's moral maze program which means he's a celebrity um ryan mullins who is in the united states received his phd from the university of saint andrews is that the one in scotland is it Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. He has produced or published over 50 articles and three books on philosophical theology. Those books include The End of the Timeless God, published by Oxford in 2016, and God and Emotion, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. He has held research and teaching positions at the University of Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, as you say, uh, Cambridge, St. Andrews. Uh, edinburgh and helsinki he is currently a visiting professor of philosophy at palm beach atlantic university also he is a lecturer and researcher at the university of lucerne where he helps oversee the new master's program in philosophy theology and religions it's an online program in jewish christian and islamic philosophy and theology so if you're looking to do a master's talk to ryan now so the title of the dialogue as we know is god and time in islamic thought as a dialogue we need to define some terms though so ryan can you start by defining the following terms for us eternity timelessness and temporality
1: Mm -hmm. so to be eternal is to exist without beginning and without end and historically the word eternal like has been used this way throughout western history so merely existing without beginning and without end. If you wanna say that God is timeless, you need to make some additional claims beyond the the assertion that God's just eternal. What you have to do is you have to add the claim that God exists without succession, without temporal uh, change, without uh, temporal relationships and without temporal location. So sometimes people will say a timeless God exists uh, as a whole or all at once without beginning and without end and without before and after in some sort of timeless present, some sort of timeless now. Now, if you want to say that God is temporal, you're going to do a little something different. You're going to say God exists without beginning and without end because you're asserting that God's eternal. But you're going to say God can undergo succession and change and God can stand in temporal relationships and God can have temporal location. So, for example, you could say God exists right now.
0: OK, now, another important question is the nature of time. So, Ryan, how do you answer the question? What is time?
1: Mm -hmm. So I affirm something called the absolute theory of time. And so in this view, there's a distinction between time itself and moments of time. And then like most of what we typically think about are the, the moments of time themselves, like a series of moments that we call a timeline. And so when you look at physics and philosophy, they're not usually interested in answering the question, what is time? They're usually looking just at the timeline. So so here's the idea. So a moment of time is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. And so that's what a moment is. Mm-hmm. But what is time itself? So time is a natured entity that makes change possible. It's the source of moments, and it's the thing that unifies a series of moments into a coherent timeline. And then I wanna go one step further. I wanna do something really weird. I wanna affirm a version of the absolute theory of time that was very popular in, um, in England and during the scientific revolution. So this is a view I call the identification view because it says that time is to be identified with God in some sense. And so this view says that God is time in the sense that time is an essential attribute or an essential mode of God. So time is not created because it's an essential attribute. So much like God's power, goodness, or freedom, those are not things that are created, they're essential to God. So I want to say God is omnipotent, I want to say God is good, and I want to say God is time. Uh, So Emily Thomas has this really great book called uh, Absolute Theory of Time, like rifts in modern British philosophy. And so she refers to this as the, uh, the Morian view, named after Henry Moore. Uh, and then other people who affirm this view are people like Isaac Newton and Samuel Clarke.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, Ramon, how do you answer the question, what is time?
2: Okay, I agree with Ryan that we can speak about individual moments of time that express the possibility of change and through which we have duration and succession. But I differ with him in, I don't see that time is an entity or the source of moments or what unifies them into a coherent timeline to understand these functions. I think we need to understand that all of these aspects of time of the phenomenon of time arise from the contingent, which might, which is the merely possible features of the world that God creates. So what does that mean? It means on the one hand, the moments of time, which is these sequence of temporal events we've been talking about. And on the other hand, what we can call the phenomenological activity of human beings, that is, what gives meaning to the timeline for us and gives us such concepts as past, present and future. So I'm saying that God is the creator of every aspect of the world, including human beings and their actions. And we are the ones who actively constitute the phenomenon of time in our lives. And both sides to the story are important. Um, But today we'll be focusing on the relation between God and time. And what I wanna stress on that point uh, for now is that on my view, As every aspect of time is a contingent part of the world, every aspect of time must be negated from God.
0: Okay. so next we need to talk about the ontology of time. So, Ramon, can you define presentism and eternalism for us, please? Sure. Uh, So presentism and
2: eternalism are two terms in the philosophy of time, and they are used to characterize positions that relate uh, existence to time. So normally, as normally expressed, presentism means that only the present moment exists and eternalism means that past, present and future moments all exist. When discussing with Ryan ahead of this, uh, I pointed out that on my view at least, the past, present and future that eternalism speaks about are only coherent expressions from our position within the timeline. Uh, This is because as Ryan already mentioned, true timelessness is more than eternality alone. So I have reservations about using the terminology of eternalism for my position. Now, I think I'm right in saying that Ryan would call himself a presentist because for him, God is time. So what exists is whatever is concurrent with God in his ongoing existence, moment by moment. Now, I'm not a presentist. My position is that God in his absolutely durationless existence creates every temporal moment without himself being in the temporal sequence. He timelessly creates each thing along with its spatial and temporal location and its durational existence for as long as it exists. This includes, of course, human beings and uh, our active experience of time at any given moment.
0: Okay. Now, Ramon is going to be defending divine timelessness today. It will be helpful for people to hear about some historical figures within Islam who affirm divine timelessness. Who are some Islamic philosophers and theologians who affirm that God is timeless?
2: Okay, so the major reference and inspiration for my Islamic position of divine timelessness is a theologian uh, from the 10th century, Samarkand called Abu Mansur Al-Maturidi. And he gives his name to one of the two main schools of theology in Sunni Islam. Uh, I find him a massive inspiration and just a brilliant and unsurpassed theological mind. Um, one of the interesting things that Al-Maturidi does in my reading is to absolutely negate temporality from God. So this is connected to his idea that God creates in eternity, but the effects of that creative act uh, appear at their places in the timeline. What I've recently been uh, finding very interesting is that many figures of his era and those that followed him in the Sunni theological tradition, though they uphold God as beginningless, endless and changeless. They do not negate all duration from God. Rather, God is still envisaged as existing in a kind of ongoing way from eternity before the creation until now and then forever. This is not usually thought of as a temporal position, I should be clear, in the uh, Islamic tradition. But I would suggest it's not the true timelessness that Ryan defined early. Mm-hmm. earlier. So uh, in, in any case, uh, this second position is not the position I'll defend today. Instead, I will be uh, trying to uh, uh, defend a thoroughgoing timelessness. And apart from al Maturidi, I can reference another figure who it seems held to a fully timeless understanding of God. Though for that, I'm relying on the reading of my colleague, uh, Laura Hassan. In her book, she mentions the 12th-century scholar Taj al shahrastani as arguing for such a timeless conception. He's claimed uh, as an Ashari, but also sometimes as a Ismaili. Uh, the Ashari being the other uh, Sunni, uh, one of the other Sunni schools of, of theology. But for the purpose of the present discussion, I'll be working from Al-Maturidi uh, as well as my own theological ideas.
0: Okay, thank you. Now, Rani is going to be uh, defending divine temporality. Who are some Islamic uh, figures who affirm that God is temporal?
1: Yeah, so I need to start by saying I don't, I don't know the full story here because I'm still an amateur at Islamic philosophy and theology, but I can give you some names at least. Okay. So if you look at the work it works in like the Oxford Handbook of Medieval Philosophy and then a lot of the work from John Hoover, um, you start seeing different names in the Islamic tradition who affirm that God undergoes change in succession to, to some extent. And then, excuse me, because I'm going to butcher all these pronunciations. So um, so, so in the ninth century, there's this Islamic group called the Karamis. They affirm divine temporality. And then when you look in the 11th and the 12th century thinkers like uh, Abu al-Ma'ali al juwani uh, Far ad din al-Razi, and Abu Barakat al-Baghdadi. And then at least on one reading of al juwani his views on God and time look almost identical to the contemporary Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne but um, Ramon and I were, were talking about this about a month ago and he was showing me the text and the text looks like it's open to different interpretations. So I'm not not 100% certain what's going on there. At least on one reading, it looks like Swinburne and then other readings I'm going, this might just be incoherent. So- Richard Swinburne, yeah.
0: who's a very famous and somewhat elderly, bless him, uh, British mm-hmm. uh, philosophy religion. Do you think he actually had read Al Aljuani and kind of borrowed the idea? Or is that?
1: I don't know. This is a good question. I've had a lot of conversations like this with my with some of my friends. Because Swinburne, what he d- he does not show his homework all the time. Wow. So when you're reading through a lot of his work, he's he's mentioning all these ideas from these different time periods, but he's not citing figures. Mm. But he does seem to have this really deep understanding of history of like the early church fathers and Christianity. Mm-hmm. I know he worked uh, did a lot of reading with uh, uh, Richard Sorabji, so he's very aware of these these different thinkers. Sweet. But he never de- he never cites them. So Okay. I don't know. But that's oh. a good question. Yeah. So I didn't Yeah, no, 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 that's a good question. Um, what else? Oh yeah, so I want to mention one other person though that I think yeah. is really fascinating. Uh, so the divine temporality of Ibn Taymiyyah mm. is, you know, kind of a, a big deal in certain Islamic circles. Absolutely. And then I've been reading this more recent book by uh, Hatim al-Hajj, which is called Between the God of the Prophets and the God of the Philosophers, Reflections on an Authority on the Divine Attributes. Uh, And this guy gives a really explicit defense of divine temporality based on the Quran and Islamic theology and philosophy. So there's some precedent within the Islamic tradition for affirming divine temporality.
0: Fascinating. Now, we come to part two, in a way, uh, of our dialog looking at the arguments themselves now. So the first argument we want to discuss is a critique of divine timelessness. Uh, it's called acting for a reason, acting for a reason. So, Ryan, take us through the argument, if you will.
1: Yeah, so there's a really interesting history to this argument that predates Christianity and Islam, and then it becomes, at least as far as I can tell, it becomes a much bigger deal in Islamic thought than it does within the history of Christian thought. So Christians, a lot of times, it, they seem to just kind of dismiss it out of hand and never take this argument too seriously. But, but here's the idea. So when an agent acts for a reason, that just entails temporality. That's, that's the claim. So when an agent acts for a reason, she does so to obtain some goal that she does not presently have. So if she already had that goal, she would not act. So you don't act to obtain something that you already have. You act to accomplish some new goal. And that's thoroughly temporal because there's a state of affairs where you set a goal and then you act to bring about that goal. And then hopefully you accomplish that goal. Mm. And that involves a succession of moments. So here's what that means for God. So if God creates the universe for a reason, then God is temporal. And this is because there's some state of affairs where God does not have a universe and God's reasons motivate him to uh, to to act to bring about a universe. And then before I turn things over to Ramon, I want to uh, like introduce a little caveat here on the argument. So when you're looking at the Christian tradition, this argument is usually dismissed. Like I said, um, by people like Saint Augustine. So Saint Augustine just says, well, God eternally wills that the universe exists, uh, and then so God eternally has a reason to create. So he thinks that's enough that doesn't answer the objection because the argument's focusing on the transition from acting for a reason or a purpose in the transition to accomplishing that purpose. And so if you say that God like eternally wills uh, to create the universe, then you might end up saying that the universe eternally exists alongside of God. And Augustine's aware of that problem, but he just goes, I don't have enough time to talk about it right now. It (laughs) kind of like sweeps under the rug. And so I I find that dissatisfying.
0: He was a busy man being a bishop and whatnot. So right. Yeah. OK, Ramon, how do you want to respond?
2: OK, so this argument raises the following dilemma. Uh, if God acts for a reason, then he acts temporally. But if he doesn't act for a reason and acts timelessly, then his creation is eternal. Uh, I actually don't think either horn of the dilemma holds up too well. On the first point, the idea of acting for a reason was discussed a fair bit in Islamic theology. A representative group who argued God acted for a reason were the Baghdadi Mu'tazila. Uh, they reasoned as follows. God must create for a reason or otherwise his action is foolish. When people act for a reason, they do it to either benefit themselves or others. God doesn't need anything. So he creates to benefit the creation. Despite this, the Moctezilla didn't think that God changed through realizing this reason. So I'm not sure that acting for a reason would have to be connected to temporality. In any case, Al-Maturidi, who I'm drawing from, argued against this group and this conception of a reason for God while rejecting the idea that God ever acts foolishly. For Maturidi, God is supremely wise, Uh, What is what's his wisdom? Well, we can't fully understand every detail of it, but we can understand some general features of the way it manifests. It means the world must be intelligible for us. For example, Um, we can rationally come to know that there's a purposeful agent God who creates it. And at the same time, God makes choices, though his choices never contradict his own wisdom. Uh, Does all this require God to change or to experience succession, which is our topic today? No. Uh, According to Maturidi, and I would uh, concur, God's wisdom and will are some of his divine, his timeless divine attributes. What God's attributes manifest is the temporal sequence of contingent things. From the theological perspective uh, of Al Maturidi and myself, it would be a mistake to expect God to have the same kind of time bound attributes that we do. Uh, On the second horn of the dilemma, uh, we have this very common contention that's thrown at those who uphold the idea of an eternal God creating a temporal world. or I should say a timeless God creating a temporal world. The alleged problem is actually heightened from al Maturidi, you could say, who because he holds that God's creative action is complete with him in timeless eternity. So he actually does hold to these timeless actions. Um, but yet the effects of God's action appear uh, as the timeline. So some critics in the past and today argue, well, if there's an eternal cause, it must have an eternal effect. Um, and I think this misunderstands the nature of the eternal timelessness that I want to defend. I'm arguing for a complete negation of the temporal moments of which the world as a contingent possible entity must be comprised, a complete negation of those moments to God. So there's no eternal time in which God's actions have their effects. Rather, what is the effect of God's actions? Well, it's nothing other than this created temporal sequence, and God has the power to delimit it as he wishes. So there's nothing, in my view, logically impossible or incoherent about God creating such a sequence, a temporal sequence, with a finite first term, which is Um, then you get to a a, a temporal world. Uh, This by definition, this first moment, will be the first moment of time and and some of our later discussions in this dialogue will go more into this uh, idea.
0: Mm, Very interesting. So the the next argument is a critique of divine temporality. Uh, It's called the prisoner of time objection, sounds quite glamorous, the prisoner of time objection. So Ramon, tell us how this argument goes.
2: Yeah, Well I really enjoyed reading uh, Ryan's paper on this uh, and um, he explored um, a number of uh, versions of this argument. So the prisoner of time objection basically argues that the temporality diminishes God in an unacceptable way and you can run this in different ways to try to sort of show how it's just completely unacceptable for God to be a temporal God. Um, So I'm going to try to give uh, what I think maybe Ryan could tell me what I think is an original and maybe Islamic, we could say spin on it. Um, So I wanna make use of a famous cosmological argument for God called the contingency argument. Uh, And this argument was used by Islamic philosophers, uh, especially Ibn Sina, as well as Muslim theologians. Uh, In the Western tradition, it's sometimes called the Leibnizian cosmological argument. Uh, We don't have time to get into the details of this argument. Um, And it can be formulated in various ways anyway. But I will give uh, enough of a flavor for anyone who who hasn't come across it. So the basic idea is that we observe the world and quickly see features that are contingent. That is, they are merely possible and not necessary. For example, I have a beard and Ryan does not. I wondered if maybe Ryan would quickly grow a beard before the... uh, I thought about it. But he didn't. He didn't grow it. So we're we're safe. But we are uh, confident uh, that it is at least possible to be the other way around. Um, so, so me being uh, clean shaven and, and rhyme with the beard. But what decides which possibility is realized? Ultimately, so the argument goes, there must be an entirely necessary being, i.e. God, to ground all of these possibilities. Otherwise we have a vicious regress. So that in a nutshell is the contingency argument. Uh, it's much discussed in the literature and not everyone accepts it, but it's generally held to be a pretty powerful argument. Now, I will argue that temporal location is an aspect of contingency. God, I will argue, cannot be contingent by existing in a temporal location. For him to be so would make him subject to a distinct necessary entity; i.e., he would be. Um, uh, uh, you would need this distinct necessary en- entity to explain this this aspect of contingency, and so he would no longer be God in that case. So here's my argument. Uh, so temporal location is a contingent property; that is, it is merely metaphysically possible that an entity with a temporal location exists in one time rather than another. It could exist here. Or it could exist there. Uh, second, if an entity has even a single contingent property, then it is dependent on a distinct necessary entity with only necessary properties. So this is the part that depends on the contingency argument. So on the view of on, on the view of divine temporality, which we, Ryan's been defending today, God possesses a temporal location. That's one of the key things that he said from the outset. So now, uh, what conclusions can we draw from this this kind of uh, uh, combination of premises? Well. If God possesses a temporal location and a temporal location is a contingent property, then God must have a contingent property. This is his present temporal location. He's not always at that location. Sometimes, I mean, even in one moment, he'll be somewhere else at this next location. That's the essence of contingency or mere possibility. Uh, I then conclude that such a temporal God is dependent on a distinct necessary entity. That is, if he has a contingent property, he must be subject to this result of the contingency argument. Obviously, this depends on the contingency argument uh, going through. Finally, I conclude that a God, so to speak, that is dependent on a necessary, another necessary entity that's distinct from him is not, in fact, God at all. Rather, this distinct necessary entity is God or should be God. So what I'm suggesting is that uh, either my argument is successful, but then the temporal God isn't really God, or as my other starting points seem uncontroversial, uncont- maybe, we ought to deny the assumption of the temporal location of God. In either case, we break our conception of God out of the prison of time.
0: Mm, I like the nice rhetorical flourish at the end there. So, uh, Ryan, how would you like to respond to the prisoner of time objection?
1: Yeah, so I want to first start by saying this is a much better version of the prisoner of time objection than I typically encounter, because the the paper that Ramon read uh, that I published ages ago I was just desperately trying to find just some version that just wasn't absolutely terrible because they're all terrible. So what Ramon's presented is actually is actually interesting. It's got some teeth. I can easily identify what the argument is. So this is really good. This is good stuff. So, so here's what I'm thinking for my response. So I want to say, yeah, I agree that in order for God, like that in order for God to be the ultimate foundation of reality, he must necessarily exist. So I want to go, yes, necessary existence. God's existence is absolutely necessary. And then I want to further agree that God's essential attributes are had by God necessarily. So God is necessarily and essentially omnipotent, perfectly wise, and perfectly free. Here's where I disagree though. So I do not believe that God has to be free of all contingency because I think that God's necessary and essential power and freedom entail contingency in God. So omnipotence. Omnipotence is the most power granting set of abilities and no liabilities and the ability to perform free actions that falls into the domain of the most power granting set of abilities. So omnipotence entails perfect freedom. And I think that uh, God's perfect freedom entails two, involves two things. So God is perfectly free in one, God is the source of all of his intentional actions. And then two, God has the ability to perform some action A or refrain from performing some action A. So basically God has options. And so here's what that means. Here's what this looks like. So imagine God uh, prior to creation, just all alone prior to creation. So God necessarily exists and God is perfectly free. God is free to create this universe, create a different universe, or just say, I don't wanna create anything at all. Like those are God's options. Now that kind of freedom necessarily involves contingency in God, because it necessarily entails that God has power that can be exercised in a variety of contingent ways. So if God decides to do nothing, well, then God has the unactualized power to create. If God decides to create this universe, well, then he has the unactualized power to create you know, a different universe. So, So being necessarily and essentially omnipotent and perfectly free just entails some contingency in God. It entails that God's will can be contingently exercised in a variety of ways. But that doesn't answer the objection entirely yet. So let me say a little bit more. So part of what Ramon is asking for is an explanation for why God exists in any given moment of time. And this brings about another area of disagreement. So Ibn Sina and Leibniz's cosmological arguments uh, for the existence of God, they've been widely criticized for relying on an overly strong principle of sufficient reason. And this overly strong principle of sufficient reason entails that everything about God must be necessary. And that means that God does not have choices. So whatever God wills, God necessarily wills. And that means that God necessarily wills to create this universe. God was not free to refrain from creating this universe. And since whatever an omnipotent being wills shall come to pass, and God necessarily wills that this universe exists, well, then this universe necessarily exists. And this is the exact kind of necessitarianism that Al Ghazali was just like horrified by. He's like, no, this is just the incoherence of the philosophers, I don't like any of this. So since I wanna say I'm free, Ramon's free, uh, Paul, you're free, I wanna say we're all free, and that God's free, I want to reject this overly strong principle sufficient reason and instead I want to affirm a weaker principle sufficient reason it's one that you find in cosmological arguments from people like uh, Samuel Clark and Swinburne and Josh Rasmussen and Timothy O'Connor and so on this weaker version all contingent states of affairs have an explanation for why they are and the explanation does not have to be contrastive because the explanation just needs to be just sufficient it doesn't have to explain why this and not that it just has to explain why this so here's here's the payoff, though, I'm hoping, at least. So Ramon asks, like, why does God exist at this particular moment of time? And here's the explanation. Part of what it means to necessarily exist is that God must be temporally located at whatever moment of time happens to exist. So the question becomes, well, why this particular moment of time exists? Well, the answer is God chose to bring about this particular moment of time and to causally sustain it because it's part of his providential plan for the universe. So you've got an explanation for why God exists at any given moment, and that explanation is found in a combination of God's absolutely necessary existence and then whatever God's reasons are for freely bringing about that particular moment. So what I'm doing is I'm putting forward a pretty standard understanding of God's necessary existence, but then relying on a weaker principle of sufficient reason that avoids necessitarianism, and then it allows you to develop some really powerful cosmological arguments for the existence of God.
0: Hmm. Okay, uh, Ramon, do you want to uh, respond now or perhaps at the end when we have a, a free discussion? Uh, yeah,
2: maybe we can save it and see if we get time to, to go okay. back to that. that that's also, fine. it's the first time I've uh, right. uh, heard this, because well, a lot of this, um, you know, we did have some discussion before, but this is uh, for hearing this live, so I'm still processing what Ryan's yeah. saying. But, uh, yeah.
0: um, so the next argument is against divine timelessness. Uh, it's called the problem of creation ex nihilo, so, Ryan, tell us about how this argument goes, please.
1: Yeah, so within the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic thought, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo has been the dominant view. And within the Christian tradition, there are various points in history where you could get in a lot of trouble if you affirm that the universe is co-eternal with God. So there's even some suggestions that maybe, like, Aquinas, he plays fast and loose with some ideas so that way he doesn't get in trouble because he's been questioned by some different councils. So you can get in a lot of trouble with these things. Um, but for some reason today... Uh, christian philosophers and theologians they've forgotten the full meaning of the doctrine of mm-hmm. creation ex nihilo so, so creation ex nihilo says that god creates the universe out of no pre-existent material but that's not all there's more to the story so the doctrine of creation ex nihilo clearly affirms an absolute beginning to the created universe and what that means is that there's some prior state of affairs where god exists all alone and another state of affairs where god exists with the created universe And far too many contemporary christians have completely lost sight of this pre-creation moment though it's widely affirmed throughout the entire christian tradition what i want to do though is keep this discussion islamic so let me give you an example from an islamic thinker so you see this pre-creation moment clearly affirmed in the writings of al ghazali so here's a quote from ghazali so ghazali says god brought the universe into being after its non-existence and made it something after it had been nothing since from eternity he alone was existent, and there was nothing along with him. After that, he originated creation as a manifestation of his power and a realization of what he had previously willed and of what from eternity had been truly his word. He did this not because of any lack of it or need of it. Okay, so I want you to notice a few different things in this passage from Ghazali. So first, he's assuming a very standard definition of what it means to begin to exist. So in the history of philosophical theology in the West, it's it was affirmed that something begins to exist if it is preceded by non-existence. Even see uh, Ibn Taymiyyah affirm this very explicitly. So if the universe begins to exist, then it must be preceded by non-existence. And then second, I want you to notice that Ghazali clearly affirms the entailment from this. So there's a state of affairs where God exists all alone. So for Ghazali, this pre-creation moment where God is all alone is a timeless state of affairs. And that's, I mean, that's just a very popular position in the Middle Ages. Like, pretty much everyone says this. Now, also notice, though, that Ghazali says that there's a state of affairs where God exists with the universe. So that's Ghazali. That's what he's saying. Here's the point that I want to make. How can God be timeless throughout all of this? Because I think all of this clearly entails divine temporality. God exists alone and then transitions to existing with a bunch of cosmic stuff. So you've got God all alone, and God with the universe. And I wanna say that's a clear case of succession in the life of God. And then I wanna point out one more thing before, uh, before we ask Ramon to respond. So I believe that the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, it's incompatible with the B theory of time or this eternalist ontology of time that we spoke about earlier. So some contemporary philosophers like Paul Helm and Catherine Rogers, they affirm timelessness, and then they also affirm this B theory of time. And then they point out there's a very clear entailment for this view. They both affirm that there is no state of affairs where god exists without creation and then they both affirm that god and the created universe are co-eternal well that's just incompatible with the doctrine of creation out of nothing's affirmation of a pre-creation moment where god exists all alone
0: mm, interesting so ramon how do you want to respond to that okay uh, the
2: doctrine of creation ex nihilo is an important doctrine in islamic theology mm. though many of the islamic philosophers rejected it Uh, The core of the objection that Ryan has presented is based not on the fact that the universe has a first moment or an absolute beginning, which I agree with, but an interpretation of what that means. Ryan has argued that it means there must be a pre-creation state of affairs in which there is just God and no world, followed by a successive state of affairs in which God exists with the world. I argue that this way of understanding the absolute beginning of the world already sneaks in the idea of God as temporal. If there was no other way to understand what the absolute beginning of the world means, then perhaps a commitment to creation ex nihilo could be used to say that divine temporality is the only game in town. But my position is that there is another option. I argue that the first moment of the world is this first term in the temporal sequence that God creates. Yet he creates that first term and all the subsequent ones without being before that sequence in any sense of temporal succession. That this absolute beginning is preceded by nothing which is what we've been saying, means precisely what it sounds like. There is literally nothing whatsoever temporally prior to that first moment. Uh, it can be difficult for our limited minds to understand what it means for God to exist outside of the timeline. And for this reason, some temporalists say that just the whole thing's impossible. I think, however, that the position can be explained coherently. Someone may disagree that my position is the correct view of God, but I hope at least they will understand what I mean by the words I use and that I'm not being mysterious or contradictory. As i've mentioned my position is that each moment on the timeline exists in its own time this existing in its own time is the proper mode of existence for successive things in a temporal sequence and we know this from our experience but god is outside this sequence as its creator so he does not undergo in my view temporal succession like we do as beings within the sequence Uh, i'd like to highlight that properly speaking neither any individual moment of the sequence, nor the sequence in its entirety, exists with God in his timeless eternity. God just doesn't have a temporal location, on my view, whereas by definition, every point on the timeline does have such a location. Something that might help to understand this um, that I was thinking about, and how creation ex nihilo fits in, is to consider the doctrine of Muslim philosophers that the universe is past infinite. So, so they deny creation ex nihilo. That is, They thought that for every moment of the world, there's always another prior moment going back forever and ever and ever. So let me be clear. I do not accept this doctrine uh, because I accept creation ex nihilo, but I want to point out something very interesting. If this past universe was true and God was temporal, then yes, the universe would be beginningless just like God and would have always existed temporally alongside him. But on my timeless view, even if the past infinite universe is true, and I don't believe it, It has never and will never exist temporally alongside God. In other words, just because the sequence lacks a first term in this scenario, it doesn't mean that God enters it. Now, let's go back to the present objection. Creation ex nihilo is simply the affirmation, on my view, that the sequence does, in fact, have a first term. And I argue that there's no logical contradiction for a timeless God to create such a sequence with this first term.
0: Mm. Interesting. Thank you. Now the final argument for us today is called the sooner objection, the sooner objection. This is a potential problem for both views on God and time. Ryan, tell us how this argument goes please.
1: So this one has a really interesting uh, history to it. It's a, it's a very ancient objection that's supposed to be either against temporality, or if you affirm that God's timeless, it's supposed to get, say like get rid of creation ex nihilo, affirm uh, eternal creation or something like that, or an emanation. So the sooner objection basically asks why why didn't God create the universe sooner? So creation ex nihilo says the universe has this absolute beginning. So why didn't God create the universe just like a moment before? Like why not why not sooner? And there's this really rich history to it across the Abrahamic faiths, um, but again, I want to just keep this Islamic today. So I want to focus on a version of this argument inspired by a very controversial figure within Islamic thought named Abu Bakr al-Razi. So, so here's the big idea. So we say God's perfectly rational, so always acts for a reason. You know, seems good. Uh, God cannot act without a reason. God cannot act arbitrarily. Yet before God creates the universe, he's confronted with a seemingly endless succession of moments at which he could create. So why did he create at that particular moment instead of you know, an earlier moment or a later moment? Each moment is just as good as any other to create a universe. So it seems like God must just kind of select at random, like that moment, I guess, I'll do that, why not? Well, what if God selects at a random moment, then he's gonna be acting arbitrarily and that just goes against perfect rationality. So what do you do to avoid the sooner objection? So what I'll do is I'll give Al-Razi's response, and then we'll have uh, Ramon do his, and then we'll look at my somewhat a- inspired, uh, Al-Jawani-inspired response. But, but here's, here's what Al-Razi says, and I love this. It's, 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 it's just um, So anyway, he says, God does not create the universe. Uh, and, and you might be thinking, well, hang on, how, how did we get the universe? The, the only way to create a universe at a particular moment would be to act arbitrarily. God can't do that. So for Al-Razi, God is not the only eternal substance that exists there is also an eternally existent world soul. And this world soul is foolish, and it can act arbitrarily. And this, so this what this foolish world soul does is just arbitrarily selects a random moment to create the universe. And and you might think, like, I'm sorry, that's just nuts. Like, like just positing the idea of a foolish world soul is just crazy. But Al-Razi is going to be like, no, 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 no. This is a perfectly rational position to affirm. Because look at the universe around you. I mean, does that really look like the product of a perfectly wise being? Of course not. No, 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 no. This is the product of a foolish world soul, and we are just in the process of God cleaning up the mess. So that's that's what Al Razi would say. Mm,
0: extraordinary. So how do you want to respond to this sooner objection,
2: Ramon? Okay, so I do I think that my answer to the previous ob- objection to the creation ex nihilo one pretty much covers the sooner objection too, if you think about it. The idea of creating Sooner only possibly makes sense if one envisages God temporally existing on his own and then deciding to create the world at a given moment. But on my view, the first moment of the world is just this first term of the timeline, which becomes the reference for the rest of the sequence, whatever that happens to be. So I think there's no meaning to the first term of such a sequence being sooner. The notion is just incoherent.
0: Mm. Okay, Ryan, you mentioned that you have a different response to the sooner objection. Um, How do you respond to it then?
1: Yeah, so earlier I mentioned that on one reading of Al-Jawani, he has a view of God and time that looks remarkably like Swinburne's view. So on, on this view, time depends on existence, and since etern- and God eternally exists, well, then time eternally exists. So God existed alone before the creation of universe, and God's pre-creation moment is just a single temporal moment that never began to exist. So once God creates a universe, then and only then does God pass through a series of successive moments. So there is no like successive sequence of moments prior to creation. And so, so here's what this view is doing. It's saying that there is no sooner because there is no earlier moment at which God could create the first available moment uh, of time for God to create is the moment subsequent to God's pre-creation moment. And so the only reason that there's a transition from the pre-creation moment to the next one is because of God's free decision to create. So remember what I said before, a moment is the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. When you've got God existing all alone without creation, there's a way things are, they could be subsequently otherwise. And the only reason they are subsequently otherwise is because God freely decided to create a universe. And so here's what I'm doing. I'm rejecting one of the underlying assumptions in the Sooner Objection. So Al-Razi's Sooner Objection and then all the other versions I'm aware of, they assume that there's this infinite succession of moments prior to creation where there's just like, it just goes boom, 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 just a continual sequence, just a necessary flow. And you see this in Isaac Newton. Like he affirms this. And when Leibniz gives the same objection to him, he's like, You've got this problem here. What's going on? So, what I'm doing is I'm just saying that assumption that time necessarily flows from moment to moment to moment, I'm just saying that's false. Uh, And now Al Razi is going to say the only reason you would deny that assumption uh, is because you've been spoiled by theology. And I do have a PhD in theology. So, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to this. But I think he's asking me to affirm some. Some metaphysical views that I don't have to affirm, that I can just reject.
0: Mm, Okay. Well, thank you for that, uh, gentlemen. So, um, we're now, uh, the final stage is closing uh, reflections on what has been discussed. So, uh, basically, this is uh, open ended. So, uh, Ramon or Ryan, whenever, I mean, do you have any uh, concluding reflections on what's been discussed? So, there there are lots and lots of questions, Mm -hmm. obviously.
2: I mean, I could make some uh, brief closing reflections. Um, I would like to. Uh, Thank Ryan for being such an interesting dialogue partner. We, as you can tell, um, went back and forth on this and kind of built this up. And it's been really interesting for me, uh, Mm. having thought about some of these things before, but it forced me to kind of think more clearly about specific topics and, you know, do do things I hadn't done before. So I really appreciate that. And also, uh, as well, uh, yourself, Paul, for kindly hosting us today. It's been wonderful. But with respect to the topic, um, Mm. I would like to kind of, as a sort of closing statement, sort of say that I think i have been able to show how a thoroughgoing position of divine timelessness, which I've kind of drawn out of Maturidi, but with my own kind of additions and and framing, can answer these various classic objections in a consistent and non-contradictory way. Um, Obviously Ryan might disagree with that, but I think I've given some kind of uh, uh, credible answers based on my premises. Um, I think considerably more could be said about how to deal with other puzzles and also how to sort of take this in a more technical direction, you know, in in professional philosophy terms and so on, and also how these uh, topics relate to other uh, aspects of theology. But I do feel that, at least from my perspective, I've laid out some of the basic principles um, by which I think that that could be done in a a way that would be both uh, uh, true to a genuine stream of thought within Islamic theology and within the sort of Sunni tradition, but also respecting kind of contemporary thinking and where the debate is at in in uh, philosophy, um, and I think, or at least I hope, that the people watching this uh, uh, show will see how much Ryan and my respective positions kind of, you know, our, our arguments kind of flow from these starting principles that we've had. This very first definition about how you define time kind of really lays uh, the basis for everything that follows, um, and and on that level. You know, at some point you do reach kind of first principles, and so I wonder there might become a uh, you know obviously we can keep going back and forth and seeing really to be on who 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 people think or who we how we feel we better deal with these different objections back and forth and, and whether there's certain uh, uh, arguments that we can't resolve. But in terms of like our own systems, I think Ryan's uh, divine timelessness, though I don't agree with it, I see how it kind of is, he, he's able to consistently. solve these puzzles with it. And I I appreciate that. Um, And I guess the audience can make their own uh, views. Um, And I think that, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, be good to kind of continue this discussion and and to find new, uh, uh, new fruits from it, as well as other topics.
1: Hmm. So for me, so my big research project is trying to identify all the different models of God that you see across the world's religions, and then identify arguments for and against them. So that way, we can sit down and figure out which, which one's the right one. Like, that's, that's what I would ideally like to be able to do. Uh, but it's a hard project, and it's not a project I can do alone because I'm an expert in Christian theology. And as I'm going through the history of philosophical theology in the East and the West, I see a lot of overlap in ideas, but I see a lot of divergence in different ways that where people consider arguments more significantly than others. And when I was looking through the Islamic tradition, I started seeing... Okay, there's some people who affirm my view much earlier on, so that's cool. So my view is not some newfangled 20th century idea. It's actually really old. And then also going, these are some interesting arguments that no one's really debating today. Well, that's unfortunate. We need to bring these debates back into contemporary discussion, see if we can develop them more, see if they're really as strong as they are, or maybe we can make just explain why they're not any good. But that kind of ongoing dialogue is something I would like to see because there's such a rich history here that can be developed in interesting new ways with the with the tools of analytic theology. So a dialogue like this, I just find fascinating for my own intellectual curiosities. And then mm. also just, I think, good for trying to come to, come to a better understanding of God.
0: Mm. I, 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 I just go just I'll, I'll observe it. Here, here we obviously do have a Christian and a Muslim uh, conducting an irenic dialogue um, uh, at, at a fairly advanced level, obviously. And, and this this is not always the case between Christians and Muslims. E- even today online, you often uh, get uh, some quite crude polemics and straw manning of arguments and misrepresentations and and lacking of depth and lacking courtesy, a dab, of course. So j- j- just to have this discussion uh, on this platform, I think, is a, a marvelous thing. And uh, I-, I wish there'd be many m- more of them as well. Um, and secondly, I-, I know there's a slight irony here, that I know, Ryan, you are uh, more or less, your, your views, your uh, uh, conception of a temporal God is similar in many ways to Ibn Taymiyyah's um, un- understanding. And this has been noted by some Muslim friends of mine who are a little scandalized that a Christian should be representing the Taymiyyah position on this subject. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Raymond apparently opposing it. And um, I'm not saying this is my view, but I'm just saying that that, that, that comment was made. And there's a certain delicious intellectual irony in, in this. But my, my response to that objection, if it is an objection, is that the, the, this this is an ironic academic discussion. It's not confessional. We're not out to persuade each other to become Muslims or Christians, anything like that. So it's quite a different format and for, a forum, I think, where these ideas can be explored in, in a convivial context. So I don't really have a problem with that
2: yeah it's very it's very interesting i mean right we were lucky to have uh, ryan come to an event um uh, part of this uh, research project um on muslim epistemology and ryan came as a kind of respondent to our symposium so that was a really great opportunity to dialogue already and then we built up a rapport and it's led in uh, a fruitful way i was mm-hmm. going to um uh, respond a little bit to mm-hmm. you know not that we're going to do too many counter counter responses but just briefly because i was asked um Uh, uh, to the response to the prisoner of time it Mm -hmm. raises. i really like the direction you took that um so i'm just going to sketch some directions where i'd want to respond rather than actually properly respond here um but i i noticed kind of well from my perspective it felt like you again were sort of setting up a kind of thought experiment where god's sort of waiting before the world in the pre-temporal moment and i just feel that's kind of sneaking in that temporality again which is meant to be what's that question so it's uh uh, uh you know you, you kind of I feel you have to kind of leave that to one side you're not allowed to rely on it if you're arguing for it to to avoid being kind of uh accused of question begging um uh on my own position um I and, and this idea of the principle sufficient reason I, I'm not here committing to an Ibn Sina contingency argument myself this is kind of for the sake of a good dialogue, I'm giving you a, yeah. an argument. Um, it may be too, it may turn out too strong for me too, is what I'm saying. Um, and so it's good to know that's a potential way out for this argument. Uh, I, I do think that, however, I do reject contingent properties for God, absolutely. But I feel, or at least I, I hold, and this is with the Kalam tradition generally, um, that you can have only necessary attributes for God, but yet a, a, a contingent world that that that's that can be held and they they reject uh, i think as you pointed out Ibn Sina's uh idea that you then end up with a kind of necess- necessitarian world so i re- so i reject now how you exactly do that and how that plays out and which type of uh principle sufficient reason you might need and so on is a, a discussion for another day but um yeah. i i do think that that can be held and ex- god precisely can make choices as i said um uh, but the, ch- the choices that god makes that he's making in timeless eternity aren't ones that are themselves. Basically there's no potency in God. Hmm. Right. Right. There's no idea of God. God has these potencies. And therefore I think you can avoid this kind of modal collapse, which I think you were kind of you didn't use your uh, yeah. your, 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 your you didn't use the trademark phrase, but I felt it was close <laughs> to the close to appearing on your tongue. But I do think that the modal collapse can be averted. And I've I, I think by sort of carefully expressing the levels of necessity and so on, you can kind of get away, get get around the modal collapse and um, still have divine choice but not put contingency into God, which is what I want, I want to avoid and negate. So that so that would be the kind of shape mm-hmm. of my response without actually going and trying to do it
1: live. Yeah, live. no, that's good. Um, so I just have a few quick thoughts. So first, the, the God all alone, because ha- you're not the first person who said, well, that's just sneaking in temporality into the story. And so I've been trying to trace down the history of this, and the history is very rich. And over and over again, they're saying so explicitly, God all alone, God, they'll even say things God has to have a duration that that precedes creation and so I'm like sounds like you guys are being temporal here uh, and then there's even this nice uh, book from the 1980s, it's by this guy named uh, Richard C. Dales and it's called um, The Eternity of the World in Medieval Debates and it's just a history of you know a few, a few centuries and that's a complaint he has over and over again, he's like they, they're really clear that God exists without creation, there's a state of affairs but, but it just looks like it's just like falling into the hands of temporality. And I'm like, well, maybe don't say incoherent things. I, I don't know. Um, so, so I don't think it's sneaking in uh, temporality. I think it's just what everyone's affirming. Uh, and, and and all I'm doing is just going, if you want to affirm X and you want to affirm Y, that entails not X. So this is the problem. Um, but that's a whole hist- long historical argument that I have to, that I've got in a forthcoming book manuscript and I can't do it now. Um, The contingency stuff. Yeah. So I had a question for you about this because I I don't know the Islamic tradition well enough. So when the Christian tradition, when they're looking at some of these problems about would God have contingent properties? So God becomes the creator. He becomes the savior. He becomes the the, the judge of of all men. They go, well, those are accidental properties. God cannot have those. So what they do is they say, God's not really related to the universe. And that... That sounds wild. Um, so I don't know if there's anything like that in the in the Islamic tradition to avoid God having these contingent properties, uh, where you say God's not really related to the universe.
2: I mean, I think that I mean I, I can't speak for the whole tradition um, uh, in terms of my expertise, but I, I would say that um, it seems to me that either you kind of bite the bullet on God's properties being entirely necessary and entirely uh, uh, eternal. Right. Um, or you you either then have to go down to this uh, affirming these uh, contingencies, um, which was for Sunni theology was uh, often a big no, no. Uh, uh, some individuals did go in that direction, but it was generally not the mainstream of these two main uh, Calam schools. They didn't like doing this at all. Um, now you get a difference in terms. Of, so if you're not going to affirm kind of uh, contingent properties in God, you basically end up. Either giving them all to God or giving those kind of properties to the world in in some way or other, right? So they went this way. So so this is an issue. Uh, they had these um, what they call the um, active attributes, sifat al-fear. And you can either, if you're a Maturidi, you say that these you know these actions are you know with God in eternity. And as, as I said, mm. um, that's an account that then you know you need to be able to explain that account. Mm. Um, how how is that possible? Or for that, both the Asheris and the Mu'tazallah basically puts put these uh, uh, active attributes into the world. They're just creations, you know? And then you do get into questions about, well, certain things that you, you feel should be affirmed of God are actually being affirmed of as God's creation, you know, um, and as examples of this. So that's the way that they kind of... They did want to hold firm to this idea of sort of the unchanging, non-contingent nature of God. And the way they did this was by shunting those properties into the world or keeping them with god in some divine model and um, that's my understanding obviously a lot more to be said but sure yeah yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. no that that putting it into the world is interesting because it it's kind of what you see like someone like saint augustine and then on through the middle ages all the way to like aquinas and scotus say is when i when i talk about god being the creator god doesn't actually have the property being creator um that's just a property that that i have that exists in my head alone uh, so when I say God's creator, I'm really saying something about me uh, to which I always want to go, no, I'm sorry. I, like, I, I am a competent language user. I know how to use the English language. I, if I say God's creator, I'm saying something about God, like, cause it says God right there, you know? So I'm not saying anything about me unless I'm like really deeply confused, in which case I should, I feel like I should change my language entirely. So it sounds like something similar is going on there. Uh, but then I, cause I've seen some of the stuff about active attributes, but again, I'm I'm such an amateur with the Islamic stuff. So I don't, so I, I need to think about this more. This is good.
0: Mm, very interesting. Um, do, any any further remarks before we conclude, Ramon and Ron? No, I'm okay. I'm,
2: I'm good. I've enjoyed it, and I think it's a good length as well, um, yep. and I hope we can do a sequel at some point.
0: Inshallah. Yes, God willing, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to uh, recommend... Um, couple of things. Uh, uh, This is Ramon's uh, magnum opus, uh, to date anyway, Transcendent God, Rational World, a Mataridi Theology. If you want to understand uh, uh, Ramon's metaphysics, his theology, his philosophy, uh, it's all in this book. It's very readable, actually. I'm reading it now. It's very enjoyable. I'm sorry, Ryan, I can't recommend it because I've not actually read any of your books, I'm ashamed to say, but what would you like to plug at this stage that might be relevant to what we've been saying?
1: Well, so hopefully within a couple of months, I'm going to have a book uh, that's going to come out called Eternal in Love, a little book about a big God, which is going to be about 100 pages. It's got a little bit of devotion, a little bit of sarcasm that I don't normally get in an academic book. Uh, and it's just supposed to be, here's my take on what I think God is like uh, in 100 pages or less. And I look at some different questions that don't normally get discussed, like why would God create anything at all? Why this particular universe? Mm. If God knows the future, then what are God's emotions like? So I get into some, some mm-hmm. fun stuff there. Um, and then I've got my sequel to uh, The End of the Timeless God. that's under review. I have no idea when that's going to come out. Um, hopefully next year. But it's going to be called From Divine Time Maker to Divine Watchmaker, Explorations and wow. Divine Temporality, where I go through a lot of the stuff that we did today. And I talk a lot about Al-Razi, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ghazali, uh, a lot of Hindu, a lot of Jewish thinkers, a lot of Christian thinkers. So it's it's... It's gonna, it's gonna be an expensive academic book. So, so wait, wait, wait for the eternal book. Yeah, we will. So the the shorter one you mentioned, who's publishing that? So that's gonna be with Cascade. They're currently copywriting it. So hopefully, right. in a couple months, it'll be ready. It'll only be twenty bucks. So. That's actually affordable.
0: What's that in English? About 15, 16 quid. I don't know. What it is.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it should be uh, the current exchange rate. Yeah, it should be about uh, 17 yeah. pounds. Yeah, yeah,
0: 17. Yeah, cool. We'll look yeah. out for that. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ryan Mullins and Dr. Ramon Harvey, for your uh, very entertaining, clear, lucid exposition of your respective positions. It's been fascinating um to watch and to participate in passively, perhaps. Uh, very, very interesting indeed. So thank you very much. Uh, until next time, inshallah. Thank you, Paul.